Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Bible Q&A with Pastor Stephen. My name is Stephen Pace, and I'm the senior pastor at Decatur Bible Church in Decatur, Michigan. This podcast attempts to answer Bible questions in a clear but thorough manner. If you would like to have a Bible-related question considered for a future episode, you can email me at pastorstephendbc at gmail.com. Again, that's pastor, S-T-E-V-E-N-D-B-C, at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll be looking at three questions, so grab your Bibles and let's get started. The first question that we're going to look at is, do we know where Jesus is at today? I know that he's going to return one day, but where is he at now? So in order to answer this question, I think the best way to start is, we know, of course, in the accounts of the Gospels that Jesus was crucified. He was raised on the third day. But oftentimes we forget the chronology or sequencing of events after that. So, first off, we know after the resurrection, there was a period of 40 days where Jesus gave witness to his resurrection. Of course, he bore witness in a variety of ways to a variety of people over 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, in those verses, we see what is the traditional passage of the Ascension. It's also recorded at the end of the Gospel of Luke, but Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, describe the ascension of Jesus. So, in order to answer the question, after that, what happened? Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to two passages that speak to what occurred post-ascension or after the ascension. The first one we're going to look at is Mark 16. Mark chapter 16 and verse 19. So in Mark 16, 19, we read, So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, so describing the ascension, but Mark includes, and sat down at the right hand of God. So that gives us a short idea of what occurred. So you had the resurrection, the 40 days where Jesus gave witness to his resurrection. At the end of that 40-day period, he is, as Mark describes, taken up into heaven, the ascension, and then now is seated at the right hand of the Father. We also can find this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. There, Peter says, Speaking of Christ, if you notice in the verse before it, verse 21, he spoke of through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So there we can see pretty clearly between those passages, the resurrection, the ascension, Acts 1, 9 through 11, and then Mark 16, 19, 1 Peter 3, 22, that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Now, interestingly enough, if you turn to the Psalms, you'll see a description of this as well. 
you look in the 110th Psalm, so Psalm 110 and verse 1, we'll read, this is a Psalm of David, and it's describing the Lord's dominion that is given to him uh, as a king. But you'll notice in Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there again, you still have the same general idea in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament that one day the Messiah would come and he would sit at the right hand of God until all of his enemies had been put in subjection to him, if you will. So we see that. So the first part of the answer is, of course, where is Jesus now? Well, the first part of that is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. Now, I think it also helps with this to answer it a little bit more in detail is to look at two particular roles that Jesus has at this present time. The first is Jesus is our great high priest. And we'll see that if you will turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. There, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And of course, that is a section of verses there, verses 14 through 16, that speak of us having been encouraged to draw near to the Lord's throne of grace, be that uh, done in confidence. But in that particular verse, verse 14, we are, of course, speaking of the great high priest, Jesus, and he is the Son of God there. So we see that his current role in his present session is as great high priest. And you can see that throughout a large portion of the book of Hebrews. For example, in chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 20, and I'm going to start reading in verse 19, in fact, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, you see that Jesus being received up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and there not only crowned with great glory and honor, but seen as our great high priest. There, the reference to Melchizedek. So we know that Jesus then is at the right hand of God in heaven. He serves as our great high priest, but he's also our advocate. And we'll find that in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. There it says, John does, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we'll stop there. But you'll see in verses 1 and 2 there, Christ is seen as our advocate there, having been received up into heaven, not only as great high priest, but also as our advocate. Now, the word advocate in Greek gives the idea of someone coming alongside, being summoned, if you will, to come alongside a helper 
an advocate there. Uh, reading from the Ryrie Study Bible, Ryrie says that advocate is literally one summoned alongside a helper or patron in a lawsuit, used only by John in the New Testament and translated helper. See John 14, 16, verse 26, chapter 15, 26, and 6, 7. Our defender in the courtroom of God is righteous and therefore effective. So the answer to our question then is that Jesus right now is seated at the Father's right hand where he serves as our great high priest. We can go to him with great confidence knowing that we will receive mercy in the time of need, but we also know that he is our advocate and he is there to help us. So in many ways, some similarities there, and he will remain there until all of his enemies, if you will, are put in subjection to him. And that would be, of course, referring to the second coming and uh, those eschatology-related events. Now for our second question, our second question is a trivia question. The question is, is the following in the Bible? If so, where? And here's the quote. Spare the rod, spoil the child is a biblical teaching about raising children. So again, is spare the rod, spoil the child, is this biblical teaching, if so where, concerning raising children? Now you've probably heard this expression before, spare the rod, spoil the child. In fact, this is not in the Bible, the phrase rather, spare the rod, spoil the child. Uh, the reference is not actually not in the Bible. And so the question may come up is, okay, well, where does this come from? It actually comes from the late Samuel Butler, and he has a poem. And in the poem, it states, spare the rod and spoil the child. So the initial answer is, of course, that is a false statement. Uh, that is not in the Bible. However, I think it's worth noting, though, that the Bible has plenty of parenting-related verses, some verses related to how to parent. And so the first verse I'm going to give you is in Colossians 3, in verse 21. Paul writes there, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, this is a similar verse to Ephesians 6, 4 in terms of fathers and how they are to treat their children and to not bring about discouragement to them. So again, Colossians 3, 21 and the equivalent, it's, it's very similar, Ephesians 6, 4. Um, that entire section there actually, in fact, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21 is very helpful just in terms of seeing the various roles within the family. But another place that you can turn to, and the entire book is filled with so much wisdom, and of course that's the book of Proverbs. Uh, the author of the majority of the book of Proverbs, in fact, 29 of the 31 chapters is Solomon. He has much to say about parenting I'm going to give you some of those verses here. The first one is in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 
Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath for your head and ornaments about your neck. So there you see that reference there. There's also several other in the book of Proverbs. I'll give those to you. For example, chapter 13 and verse 24, Proverbs 22, 6, and then Proverbs 29, 7. So that's Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, 13, 24, 22, 6, and 29, 7. So those will give you some general ideas of some various things you can do. And of course, the book of Proverbs in general has a lot on teaching to the family. So the answer to the trivia question is, spare the rod, spool the child. Is that in the Bible about raising children? The specific quote itself comes from Samuel Butler's poem. So while it's not in the Bible in that sense, of course, the Bible does give plenty of guidance in the area of parenting. In terms of instruction, it also gives advice on discipline and those sorts of things. So we can always turn to God's Word. God's Word is so rich with so many resources of advice, and another one, of course, would be with parenting. Now, our third and final question is, Pastor, sometimes I get confused when reading Revelation. Specifically, it's confusing knowing where the events are taking place. Sometimes it seems like they're on earth, at other times somewhere else. Now this is a really good question, and this is actually in fact one thing about the book of Revelation that sometimes can add to confusion, if you will, or misunderstandings. The book itself on some level is pretty straightforward, but of course there are many things in the book, the symbols and imagery that uh, are more difficult. But obviously when the scenes jump back and forth, it can add to confusion. So how do we get the book at least somewhat structurally right in our minds? I'm going to give you two things here. First is a general overview of the book. The book itself, at its very basic level, is in three parts. The book itself tells us that what is being described, what John is recording, are things which you have seen, meaning John has seen. And those would consist of chapter 1. Next, John is to describe the things that are, meaning are in the present at that time. And that would take up chapters 2 and 3. So in other words, John is recording the things that he has seen in chapter 1. Then as you move into chapter 2, the things that are, and those are the letters to the seven churches. And those take up chapters 2 and 3. Those are seven real letters that were written to seven real churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey for us today. And they describe seven literal real churches. So those are the things that are. But then you have the instruction of something else. And you'll find this structure in Revelation 119. 
John is told, therefore write the things which you have seen. So those are all the things in the aforementioned verses, 1 through 18. The things which are, so that's going to consist of the letters to the seven churches. But notice the third part, the things which will take place after these things. So after chapter 3, if you will. So the things that are to come, you could say future, are chapters 4 through 22. So again, the things that you have seen, chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, and then the things that are future. So having that in our heads, the next question is the, if you will, jumping back and forth in the scenes. And that is the case. The book essentially goes from earth to heaven, back to earth, back to heaven, and so forth until the book concludes. So at times it can be confusing. So I'm going to give you a summary of the chapters, and that perhaps will help a little bit. So I'm going to start here with just a general overview of how they shift back from heaven to earth. So in chapters 1 through 3, you have events that take place on the earth. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you have scenes that take place. John is taken up into the throne room of, of heaven. So that's chapters 4 and 5. And then in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 8, you have scenes that are on earth. And then in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, heaven followed by 12 through 16 of Revelation, chapter 6 is on earth again. Then when we get to Revelation chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 6, you have scenes in heaven, and then again on earth in verse 7 of chapter 8 through eleven fourteen, and then in heaven again on verse 15 of chapter 11, and that goes through chapter 12, verse 4. You then have the earth again in chapter 12, verse 5, all the way till the end of chapter 14. And then chapter 15 is in heaven. Chapters 16 through 18 are on earth. And then you have the final back and forth of the scenes in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. That's the scene in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 2010, that is on earth. And then finally, in Revelation 20, 11 through the end of the book, essentially you have the eternal state. So that is in heaven, if you will. So hopefully that helps a little bit with the back and forth, but that is an issue sometimes that is prevalent. So the key thing is just to remember where the scenes are taking place, and hopefully that overview will clear some of that up for you. Well, this concludes today's episode, and I hope that the answers to some of these questions you have find helpful. If you would like to have a question, if you would like to have a question answered in a future episode, again, please email me at pastorstephendbc at gmail.com. Well, until next time, may the Lord bless you. Thank you for watching.